Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm archiving my collection of Beatles books on Instagram with the account at BooksBeatles. I'm joined today by one of Britain's leading music writers, Graham Thompson, to discuss his fantastic 2013 George Harrison biography, Behind That Locked Door. This elegant, in-depth book tracks George from schoolboy guitarist to global superstar, Godseeker and UNICEF fundraiser. Graham Thompson, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, thank you so much in particular for talking about a book which came out seven whole years ago now. Um, if you can reach back that far uh, into oh, your... that long. it is it is yeah scary isn't it yeah, um, yeah. so let let's start a little bit if it's okay, if, if I may with the kind of inspiration behind the book what was the initial kind of thoughts behind writing it um, did you feel that George was a marginalised kind of figure in the Beatles well, it's it's strange isn't it because of course he's kind of one of the most famous people on the planet in a way you know he was so so visible so well known so everyone knows his name but you know he was a very complicated guy at the same time and of course you had um as we all know you had a hierarchy in that band and probably a justified hierarchy to be fair um so yeah i think he was kind of obscured um as a complicated human being very much by by, by john and, and paul i guess in particular um and I just thought he was an interesting guy, you know, even without being in the Beatles. And that was, a, you know, it was a it was a relatively small period of his life, I suppose, that he was in that band. Um, and I thought he'd done so many interesting things. And you think, you know, I saw a picture of his house that he grew up and you think, how did someone get from there to, you know, being one of the most famous people in the world? That's an interesting story there. And I suppose I felt, you know, previous books on him, which some of which are very good, I think, but they kind of focused on one element of his character. So it was maybe the spiritual George or it was Beatle George, you know, and, and sometimes felt reading those books that it, they were kind of thinly disguised Beatles biographies. They weren't really seeing it from George's perspective. And one thing I did want to do was kind of just look at that experience through the eyes of this young man who was kind of hurled into this madness when he was a teenager and, and thrown out the other side. So I thought there was still plenty to say about him. Yeah. I think I wanted to focus this conversation maybe primarily on the kind of post Beatle George. Uh, I think that's an area that your book is particularly strong in. And as you say, an area that is rarely covered by any other biographies. But we must talk about the Beatles because it's George Harrison. Uh, so I wanted initially to maybe get your thoughts on, on George's role in the early Beatles. He, his, the, the obvious thing that kind of came to mind when I was thinking about this question was George's childhood, which obviously you, you cover in the book, is generally a lot more contented, certainly than John and Paul's and, mm. and Ringo's uh, to a, a certain extent. Um, where do you think he, he fitted into that kind of pre-fame part of the Beatles? You know, I always just felt he, initially he was just happy, he was, he was happy to be there. You know? <laughs> he, he just, you know, he always said, you know, I'm just, I just wanted to play guitar in a band. And I, I do think, you know, originally that was just kind of the sum of his ambitions. And me, he may not have traveled that far from that in the end, actually, you know, that may have been kind of what it was all about for him. So I think, yeah, I don't think he had that drive that maybe John and Paul had to um, assert themselves, those ambitions to, to maybe be expressive about themselves uh, initially. I think he just, he liked playing guitar. He was involved with 
you know, older teenagers. And I think he was uh, probably happy to be along for the ride. And, and um, so probably, you know, I think that the structure in that band probably picked itself. I think he probably was the junior member because he was the youngest, he was the least experienced, and he probably was the, less, the least driven at that point. Um, and was kind of happy to be there playing guitar and kind of doing what he was told. Um, although there was obviously that, there was always kind of evidence of him having quite a stubborn streak and quite a self, uh, quite an opinionated streak. But, um, you know, I think the idea that he was unhappy in the Beatles comes later. I think early on he was, you know, he was just pleased to be there. That moves quite handily onto my next point and question, actually. So, um, so like I said, scooting through the Beatles' career, obviously fame arrives at their at their feet quite substantially as as we all know and um, the general view of George is that he's the first to become dissatisfied with being a Beatle with the beat the touring the recording the fame you know he he throws drinks over um photographers and journalists uh, thankfully this was pre-camera phone because lord knows what they would have caught George Harrison doing or any of them doing right. in in um in some club somewhere in in swinging London when do you think the start of that dissatisfaction happens with George post-fame the obvious thing is to go to that the oppressive nature a little bit of John and Paul not necessarily anything personally but by the sheer fact by you know 64 65 66 they're creating all these all these songs Mm. when do you think that he he starts to think you know that there might be more to life than, than just being a Beatle. Yeah, I think, I think probably the, the creative dissatisfaction maybe came after that sense that you described there of him just being, uh, maybe things just moving too quickly. And I, I think you see, um, you know, the first song you wrote for the Beatles was Don't Bother Me. You know, I think it's quite telling that even yeah. in 63, he's going, look, you know, back off. And you see, I think, re- representations of yourself that aren't true because you become a public figure very quickly and they are caricatured and, and cartoonized, I guess, very quickly, the Beatles. Um, you know, Paul always seemed to, to be able to deal with that, I think, the best of all of them, maybe Ringo too. Um, they kind of recognized that for what it was. Um, I think John struggled with it and, and George struggled with it too. And because I think George had less means to express himself at that point, um, then I think that that would have started to eat away at him a little bit. But I do think the lifestyle probably just didn't suit him. You know, you see certain people in music. Um, I wrote about another one, Kate Bush, later on. And, and the, the lifestyle just doesn't suit their temperament. You know, that traveling around the world at 100 miles an hour, jumping into cars, you know, hotels every night. I, I, don't, think it, I don't think George had the disposition to really deal with that. So I think that probably is where, you know, the Beatlemania, you know, that, that was the start of his feeling kind of oppressed by what he was doing. I think musically, he he was probably quite happy with what was happening until maybe 65. And then you think you see him starting to come out with more music. And also, you know, for a guitar player, when the live experience is so kind of dispiriting and so, um, you know, it's, it's an event, but it's not a musical event, really. It, it, first and foremost, it's a kind of explosion of hysteria. So I think that became quite dispiriting for someone who was very careful about the parts he played and wanted to play well. Um, and he saw that kind of becoming something quite different. So I think all these different elements fed in, but certainly by, you know, by, by that American tour of 66, when you have the whole Bible belt and the book burning and the Jesus comments and everything, I think, you know, he was definitely ready to bail at that point because he felt 
I think genuinely fearful about being a Beatle. I mean, he he does say, doesn't he? That's it. I'm not a Beatle anymore. Once the last gig is is finished, you know, he, he famously apparently uttered that in the tour van or something somewhere. So I think that's that that's a really that's good interesting, point. isn't it? Because it also I think it it also tells you how tied up because we obviously think now of the Beatles as a a recording group, you know, those records stand the test of time. And of, of course they labored on them, but, you know, they played live so much. And I think, you know, his, his, I think he was very invested in that idea of being a live musician and, and that they went around the world and played to people. Yeah. And so that, I think it's quite telling that, that when they say, well, we're not going to tour anymore. He's saying, well, that's it. You know, that's, that's a, that's the big part of being a Beatle gone. Yeah. Um, but of course, ironically, what it did is actually opened him up much more creatively um, as a writer and, and, uh, a singer, I think, as well. So, um, yeah, no, in- interesting um, how, you know, I think in hindsight, we look at it differently, but at the time, I think that was a huge thing uh, to stop playing live. I think if you look at all that footage of them, the 63, 64 footage of them, all four of them are loving it. You know, if you look at any of those those gigs, George is just as much, if you look at the Royal Variety Show, you know, he nails that solo until there was you, note perfect, in front of, you know, finger trembling conditions at the, you know, in front of the royal family, the queen mum, for goodness sake, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they definitely, I think they all love that, that touring, the, you know, the, the playing live as much as touring. So I think absolutely he, he yeah. felt that by the time you get to 66 and there might as well have been waxworks, as John said, I think he, he definitely felt that. Um, to kind of go alongside that, something which your book uh, puts quite a lot of significance on is he encounters obviously around 65, 66 Indian music and he encounters mm. alongside that Ravi Shankar and he encounters this whole element of spirituality, which clearly he took to the most of the four of them. They all dabbled, even Ringo dabbled with it, but he clearly, it, it made sense to him the most, I think, as a, a human being. What do you think about that, that kind of culture, Indian culture, etc.? appeal to George. Um, and do you think it was something, I mean, you, you talk in the book a lot about the, the battle that George has between spirituality and material wealth, etc. Do you think that was something that, that stayed with him for the rest of his life? Yeah, I think that, I think, I think that dichotomy did stay with him for the rest of his life. But um, yeah, because, you know, at that time, of course, you know, Indian culture, Indian music, that kind of Eastern exoticism is, is very much on trend, you know, and everyone's dipping a toe in. Um, but George dives in, I think it hits him on a whole other level. Um, and it clearly just resonated with something very deep within him. This, this idea that, um, this is not your only go around, you know, there is, you have other, other lives, other possibilities, um, other responsibilities, other means of achieving something in this life. And I think it hit him at that point where, you know, the, the Beatles had soured a little bit, not, not personally, but I think they'd achieved so much and then you kind of you sit on the top of the mountain and you go right well what else is there I'm 22 23 and you know I have material wealth I have you know the devotion of millions of people who don't really know me but think they know me and and have a version of me that they kind of adore um I'm not creatively fulfilled perhaps I'm not spiritually fulfilled um so it hits them right at that moment where all these questions are kind of bubbling up um and so, yeah, it just, it, it strikes. And, and I think that music, you know, the, the, the kind of drone of the Indian music, that, that, that long chord is something that 
is already in George's music. You know, he, he has very interesting chord structures and very interesting song structures. There's, there's, there is that slightly uncomfortable element in his songwriting that, that's there prior to that and remains so. Um, I think it's quite interesting. It's like, it's, it's, there's something wavering there already. And I think he just picks it up. He hears it in Indian music and it just, it just connects. And the kind of person he is, um, you know, he, he, goes full, he goes fully fledged into it and it coincides with the Beatles stopping touring. So he's got lots of time to go off and explore. And um, I don't think he's ever the same after that. The friendship with Ravi Shankar, I think is one which is, is, is fascinating. Mm. Um, what do you think they got from each other as a, as a friendship? Obviously, you know, they weren't similar in age. Do you think Ravi was a bit of a father, musical father figure for George? In a way, I think musically, yes, and spiritually, but also I think George taught him a lot as well. You know, it's a meeting of cultures as much as anything. You know, Ravi was already um, quite a savvy person. I mean, you know, he, he was already part of Western musical culture as, as well as Eastern musical culture. Um, so I think, you know, you know, a kind of brotherly relationship, um, fatherly in some senses, but also... Um, mutually enriching you know I think they both brought things to, to each other and of course uh, George in, musically was a was a pupil you know he was absolutely a devoted pupil and wanted to learn everything and and I think with the music he, he, he quickly found out that it, it was hand in hand with the spiritual learning you know you couldn't really do one mm. without the other so that that became his really became his obsession for for many years and it waxed and waned and but you yeah. still hear it you know, even in the last records, you still hear pretty strong elements of, of the music and the spirituality in there and certainly in the way he lived his life. So Ravi was, you know, I hesitate to say a guru because it was much more kind of earthbound than that a lot of the time. You know, they had a lot of fun. and They, they, they were both very, um, they both had quite wide hinterlands. So, they, you know, there was lots of different things that they enjoyed and talked about. Um, and, you know, one of the most beautiful things I think about George is always trying to bring Ravi into a wider audience. You know, often... <laughs> perhaps ill-advisedly in some scenarios you know but he was always trying to push his music uh, out there because that was just that's kind of who he was he always wanted to sort of evangelize about his loves I think it's quite telling actually that and I've just thought of it as we're as we're talking now it, during the 74 tour I think it's the 74 tour where he goes to meet the president George mm. you know meet President Ford uh, he takes his dad with him doesn't he and he takes Billy Preston and he takes Ravi, Ravi's there with him, you know, so that's clearly he selected who he wanted to go that day. So I think that, you know, the fact that the fact that his dad is there alongside Ravi, I think that that speaks volumes for the, the depth Very of their friendship. So, yeah, it does. And, and, and it also speaks of, for that whole tour, which was kind of designed as a showcase for all these different musicians, which nobody really understood or wanted to understand. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute, but um, that was very George, I think. I think he was always more comfortable being part of a, of a gang, really. You know, he wasn't a born solo artist. But then again, there was always this, uh, obviously, ego and creativity that had to be pushed through as well. So that, that there's a, there was a tension there, I think, throughout his life as well. Talking of egos, we're gonna, that moves us nicely on to the Beatles breakup. Um, which obviously uh, is is something that is still discussed at length. We've got we've got apparently a new film, a new version of, of Let It Be out next year. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be going over those wounds and those stories again as we all watch that. What do you think George's role was in the breakup? Obviously, we've mentioned that he was unhappy 
for different reasons at, at, at different points. What do you think his role was in that breakup? How much do you think he contributed to the general you know, dissatisfaction with being together? And just as an aside, obviously, in those Twickenham sessions, they, when George walks out, John mentions, oh, well, we'll just get Clapton in. We'll just get Eric Clapton in, into play, like it's like it's something that they can just do tomorrow. You know, do you think that his George's role in that point by the beat was was such that he could have just been replaced? Well, there's a lot to dive into there. I, well, <laughs> no, I don't think he, he couldn't have been replaced. Uh, certainly not like for like. It would have been a hugely different band had Eric Clapton been the guitar player in there. Um, I think by that point, you know, everyone had everyone had disaffections. You know, with the setup of the Beatles. I don't think it was, it's funny, I actually spoke to Michael Lindsay Hogg earlier this year okay. about the, the whole get back thing. And, and, you know, he said a lot, a lot has been made of this kind of breakup and, and uh, the arguments they had um, on Let It Be. And he said, I don't remember it like that. I remember them being quite, generally quite kind of convivial and quite pleasant to one another. Um, but what he did say is there was a sense of just, of a general kind of coming apart, of, of a natural coming apart, I think. Um, you know, George really didn't, you know, George put his foot down about playing any kind of show overseas, you know, going, you know, as you know, there were talks of Greek amphitheatres and there were talks of playing on a yacht and, you know, these grand schemes, which generally come around when no one really knows what to do anymore. You know, it's, it, it's that sense of, well, you know, we'll have to come up with something. And George was like, I don't want to do any of that. I don't, you know, we can finish the record, um, but I want to stay in, in London and just kind of get this done. And, um, so I don't think he, I don't necessarily think he was pushing, although he did kind of walk out, I don't think he was pushing to leave particularly harder than anybody else um, at that point. I just think it was, a, it was an unpleasant environment to be in at Twickenham Film Studios. Um, I think he particularly felt that was kind of quite an unnatural place to make music in. And, um, you know, and, and yeah, his songs weren't being really given the, the time of day that they deserved. And I think that was definitely clear. Um, but I think more than anything, they were all just slightly on different pages by that point. I think you can hear that in the, in the niggles. I'm sure you would have heard those niggles in 1967 or 1966 if the film cameras were there yeah. all the time. And I think the White Album in many ways was probably a more um, kind of robustuous and, and you know, tumultuous recording session than Let It Be in some ways. Um, and we see them going on and making Abbey Road, which is, you know, obviously a, a fantastic piece of work. But I do think you, you see at that point, um, I, think, I think George by that point has got an alternative view in his, in his sights. You know, I think he can see a, a better way of making music. And, and um, it's telling, you know, he was always the one who wanted, you know, Billy Preston um, coming in. And that was his idea. That was the idea of, you know, getting someone in that we know who can just kind of lighten things up and not being too precious about this four piece and you know Lennon's kind of quip about Clapton whether that was serious or not I don't know that sounds like a classic John sort of barb yeah. um, but I think George would have been quite happy getting Clapton and Billy Preston in and, and a few other people in to play on those records I think he was probably less precious about the unit mm. than other people and, and we see that kind of going forward it's where he's he's very collaborative and he's very much let's bring everyone in let's see what they can it can do because I think by that point he'd seen that they were slightly starting to kind of calcify the Beatles you know they weren't you weren't doing much in that environment. The, the Beatles breakup happens and George launches into the recording and to a certain extent the writing of, of All Things Must Pass, which is still, mm. is still generally seen to be 
obviously it is his most commercially successful record. It's generally seen to be his greatest achievement solo wise. Um, just a few questions around that. Um, first of all, do you think his reputation is deserved as, as his finest album? Um, and what do you think it was about all things must pass that made it so successful? Do you think it was just the fact it was the first George solo or do you think there's, what is it in those songs? Do you think that, that connected with the, the public so much? Yeah. It's, well, I mean, a lot of it is probably just timing, isn't it? That he's, you know, he's, he's the kind of somehow contrives to be at the end of this long race of the Beatles that he pulls out in front, you know, right at the end somehow, you know, and maybe it's because everyone maybe knew what they were going to get from John Lennon and Paul McCartney. You know, we, we were aware that they, already that they were geniuses that had written already an entire catalogue of classic songs. And they were actually interested in doing something more experimental and a little bit less accessible. You know, they were indulging themselves in that way. And George was, was kind of just laying down this great hand going, well, this is what I've got. And, you know, what, it is one of the great writing streaks, I think, in popular music, that, that, that collection of songs. Um, and he's such an honest writer as well. You know, he's, he really he covers so much in those songs, I think, you know, from Wah Wah, where you've got his disaffection with the Beatles, to, um, you know, The Art of Dying, which is just so beautiful. And then you've got um, you know, My Sweet Lord, which lays down entirely kind of unashamedly lays down his, his spiritual yearning and need. Um, so I don't think we can overlook the fact that they are really fantastic songs produced in this kind of madly over the top baroque fashion that just kind of throws everything in there and kind of, you know, demands that you resist or not resist, you know, demands that you pay attention to it. Um, but I think a lot of it was just down to the, that it hit the tenor of the times really, really square in the face. And um he was on a peak, you know, you could hear it. it, you know, while my guitar looked gently weeps, going up to something, going up to here comes the sun. It's just, a, it's a crest. And, um, you know, whether he peaked or not right there, I think he wrote many, many more fantastic songs. And I love um, a lot of the albums that came after that, but as a collection, you know, notwithstanding the sort of, you know, the third disc, which is, you know, I think we all agree now is probably uh, not required listening. But for a, for, a, for a double album, it's very, you know, it's very tight, the, the, the two discs of proper songs. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very strong. Mm. Um, and yeah, he just seemed, he seemed to have confidence all of a sudden. You know, he just seemed to be um, confident in his own music. Uh, he had a great group around him. And um, yeah, unselfconscious expression that finally could come out without anyone else saying, well, no, you only get four songs, George. Sorry. Yeah. I think it's, uh, as you say, the confidence is something that, that really kind of sounds through that album. He, you know, he's, it is, as you say, it's a marker, really. Um, do you think that its success became a little bit of a hindrance for him kind of going forward in regards to his solo career? Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I don't know if he would have seen it like that necessarily, because I don't know if he was all that kind of ambitious in that sense. But Certainly, if you're talking about a record that everything kind of gets compared back to, mm. um, then it is that, yeah. And because it was the first prop, you know, the first proper solo record that he made, um, <clears throat> if we discount the, the, the first two when he was in the Beatles, um, yeah, I, I suppose that would become a little bit trying for him. Um, and he never made anything as, maybe apart from Cloud Nine, he never made anything quite as accessible and big as that again. You know, that, that was 
that was so kind of commercially um, on the nose, you know, I think. Yeah. You know, his, his records after that were quite, they were quite small in a way, you know, they, they didn't have great ambitions. I think, so maybe he satisfied a lot of that. And also I think the fact that, you know, Bang, the concert of Bangladesh came right after that and, and elevated him even higher. You know, at that mm. point, he's one of the, the great solo superstars in music, um, regardless of the Beatles or not. Um, I think that, that probably surprised him a bit, actually. I think he thought after the Beatles, things might calm down. And then suddenly he's, he's even more famous in a way. Um, so I'm not sure he, he poured the same amount of ambition in terms of, you know, being famous or having really, really, uh, you know, huge selling records after that. I think he was content to uh, just make, make the music he wanted to do in quite a, in quite a kind of low key way often. Um, and I think the mid eighties is probably the exception to that, that statement, but um, I don't know whether it bothered him that much, you know, I think, and no. I think he was always very proud of that record, you know, as he should have been. Absolutely. And, and rightly so. Um, so after, as you say, that kind of personal peak of, all things must pass going into Bangladesh concert. Uh, then that's followed by living in a material world, which, you know, is still a commercial success. Um, not anywhere near the, I was just going to say it's, it's probably the one that I listen to the most of his albums. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's got a, I understand the criticisms of it, that it, it slightly sounds at, at the time, it sounded quite out of time because, 73 you've got, mm. you've got you've got things like glam you know and this is a, this record's a long way from you know the sweet <laughs> and mark bolan etc you know he's quite a he's quite a serious record and at the t- especially in the uk when they were going through you know a, a lot a lot a large number of social difficulties and people look to escape in things like glam and you know, bowie etc and roxy music in in another kind of style um so it, it didn't quite make sense there did it but it, I think as a... As a no, it, no, well, I was going to say, I think, it, it, yeah, I think it jarred a little bit, didn't it? Hearing this kind of multimillionaire in yeah. his 100 and whatever, 12 bedroom gothic pile moaning about his lot. But actually, if you take it out of his context now, I think it's a really beautiful record and a very, quite a brave expression of what he was feeling at that time and what he was trying to get to work in his life. And it's a very, musically very beautiful, you know, I think those acoustic textures in there are really, really work really well. And some of his most beautiful writing and, and, um, and singing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, you can certainly see at the time why it would put people's backs up. And you're kind of, you know, you're getting into, uh, you know, it's, it's pre-punk, obviously, but you, you're starting to get that attitude coming in, as you see in glam rock and the New York Dolls and things are around. And it's so far away from that. And it does feel a bit like a throwback to the late 60s kind of, hippie uh, vibe but I think uh, I think it's aged very well that record actually yeah it really has yeah it, as I said I think it, I think it makes a lot more sense in 2020 than it ever did in 1973 um, mm. so so after that obviously then we have something which I've been really looking forward to talking to you about which is Dark Horse both as a record but but more interestingly that tour I think your book is really really fantastic on on that tour uh, I mean it, it's 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 all it's almost worthy for me of a of a of a book in itself. I think it's a fascinating point in any of the Beatles solo solo careers. It, you know, looking back on it now, it's generally seen as you know a disaster in a, in a lot of respects. Whether or not that's deserved, we can we can talk about. He hadn't toured, uh, you know, any of the either of the two previous albums. Where you know a tour around all things must pass would have been perfectly palatable. That would have been ripe, you know. Um, yeah. 
what do you think made him decide to do this slightly out of kilter, shall we say, with his personality, jaunt around um, America of all places, you know, not even doing it around uh, at home, he's doing it around America. Um, do you think that the reputation that it's had, that tour, and to a certain extent the record that goes with it, as being, mm. obviously, the vo- his voice is, is not great, um, some of the attendances weren't fantastic, you know, the, the changing of um, In My Life, the, you know, a choosing that song to do of all the Beatles songs, um, taking Ravi with him, not doing enough Beatles songs. Do you think the reputation that this tour had is deserved? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of it, as you're kind of alluding to there, is about perception and expectation. You know, and I think it was a, you, you know, if you if you, it's like a product that you buy and you feel you've been missold it because it, it was misadvertised in a way. You know, I think. There was quite a lot of that with the tour, you know, and, and in the context of 74, you had, you know, you had Bob Dylan and the band who just kind of reunited and gone around America, very much being Bob Dylan and the band and, and playing to their mythology as much as anything else and understanding what people wanted from them as kind of icons of the 60s coming back into the public eye. Um, there's no sense of that with George at all. And, and if he did understand it, he didn't, he didn't play up to it at all. So you have this, it, I mean, it's the first major tour by a Beatle in America. You know, John, Paul, neither of them had been there at that point. So it's a hugely big deal. Mm. And um, you have to, you really have to meet those expectations and understand what they are, I think, to, to have satisfied uh, the expectation. And, um, you know, he, res- he, he resolutely refused to do that. I mean, I think it's a, it did become quite willful in a way. You think, well, throw them a bone, you know, Bill Graham, the great promoter, going, you, you just, you're going to have to, you know, have to, and he went, no, I don't have to do anything. I'm not a Beatle anymore. I'm George Harrison, and this is my gig. So you have, you know, you have Ravi Shankar and these fantastic um, musicians opening the show um, to general bafflement, because no, a, most people don't expect them to be there. They probably play much longer than people want them to play. Um, and they didn't come for that. You know, they didn't, they came for Here Comes the Sun and something and um, you know, she loves you. They don't care who wrote it. You know, they they want to hear these songs, and um, so I think that was part of it. Just you know, the expectations and the reality were so off kilter in that too. And a lot of that was just about how it was presented, I guess. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but also the, you know, the musicians I've spoken to who were on that tour just said, he, you know, he wasn't match fit. He just wasn't up to. You know, he, he, his voice wasn't up to it. He hadn't rehearsed. He hadn't played live enough, and he just wasn't up to it. Um, it's a big undertaking playing, you know, two hours of rock and roll in a stadium for three months or whatever. And um, I think he really badly underestimated um, how much that was going to take. So I think, you know, a little, there's probably a little bit overstated how bad some of those shows were, you know, having listened to some of the you know, unofficial recordings. Mm. Certainly the, the musicians are great. You know, the music sounds very good. But you could take issue with a set list and you could take issue with a vocalist, I think. Um, because, you know, he's not playing the songs people want to hear by and large, and he's not singing them very well when he does. Um, and I suppose that's the harsh reality of it. Um, so, um, and then I think the, the, it just became a bit of a downer because the reviews came in and they were pretty harsh and they were reading them on the plane, you know, going from gig to gig. And George dug in, you know, he didn't, he didn't relent and say, okay, we're going to stick a half a dozen Beatles songs in there and give people what they want. And so it became a bit of a, a war of attrition, I think, by the end. Um, 
as to why he did it in the first place, I, I'm not that sure. Um, it's, it's odd. I think, I think the Dylan thing might have influenced him a little bit. I'm sure that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of money on the table. Uh, I know that. Um, yeah, it's, it's odd because it wasn't something you would ever think that was really in his nature, I guess. But it seems that, you know, he, he obviously thought about it like this would be going back on the road with the Beatle, you know, and I'm, I'm standing with my guitar and it's fairly undemanding in a sense. And of course, he's fronting the whole thing and it's a whole different experience. Um, so, yeah, it probably does deserve its reputation as a, a bit of a, certainly a huge misstep, not a disaster necessarily, but um, what, what's a shame, I think, is that it really just put him off doing it again. Uh, it's a shame we never got to see him over here really doing a, doing a tour, because I think with a, you know, with, with, a, with, a, with a maybe smaller band and smaller venues and, and more realistic expectations, you know, George would have been a fantastic uh, live performer on a, on a more regular basis. I think jumping forward as, you know, is my one, the Japanese tour with Eric Clapton, yeah. whilst maybe a little bit stayed at, at points, I think there he's got, obviously there he's, he's, he's a lot happier. The voice sounds good. Um, he's got, again, a really tight, well-knit band that was really made for him. I think that's the, you know, a fascinating little window into what a, a, a George Harrison tour might have been, but. As you say, it, it, alas, it wasn't, wasn't to be. Um, so uh, obviously after the Dark Horse tour happens, he, he, he kind of licks his wounds a little bit. Domesticity arrives and, and he, he looks to be happier at home. Obviously, on, I think on that tour, Olivia and he form a, a relationship that obviously would mm-hmm. last test the, stand the test of time. Uh, and then in, in 77, uh, he, he's blessed with the birth of his son, Danny. Um, then it's an area of George's career which is is rarely talked about, which is that kind of late seventies, early eighties period. The mm. the albums that come out then are, mm. you know, critically not particularly well liked. Commercially, they're not particularly successful. Um, recently, you've seen a little bit of a resurgence, certainly in the reputation of Thirty Three and a Third and the George Harrison album, um, mm-hmm. but even then. You know they're not records that are going to get big box set reissues anytime soon. Do you think the reputation of those records again is is deserved? And what do you think made them not sell and and not be successful? This was only seven, eight years after the Beatles broke yeah. up. You know. Well, I think partly a little bit of it's about what you mentioned earlier is that you know you're you're coming on the back of All Things Must Pass and also. Um, the Material World records, which are big records and they've got big songs and big catchy tunes on them and they're very successful. Um, and, they, you know, none of those albums really have that. You know, they, they, don't, they don't kind of aspire to that level. And I think what we see in the late 70s, that sort of second part of that decade, it's just a kind of tempering of his ambitions. He just seems to want to write pleasant songs you know it, it just it doesn't seem any more you know i've looked you know i think 33 and a third maybe is the best of them mm. um and that, you know there's kind of so, nice soul influences influences in some of those songs which i think work quite well but they're very they're he, you know he's playing within himself i think you know he's not he's not pushing himself i think as you say there's other things on his mind he's he's got you know he's married and he has a young kid mm. you know, he's traveling the world going to you know, Grand Prix all over the world. And, 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 you know, that becomes a huge passion to him. Friar Park is, is a, is a huge passion by this point. The gardens are starting to become more, um, 
important in his life. So I just think, and maybe it is to do with the tour, that, that every, the music just became a little bit less important, maybe, um, in that his ambitions were maybe just to sit and down and write quite nice songs. But there was no huge drive to do much more than that, because that's what, that's what they sound like. You know, they're not necessarily really bad records. I think, you know, bits of Somewhere in England aren't very good. Gone Tropple's not very good in parts as well, but they're not generally very bad records. They're just... Um, a bit tepid, a bit lukewarm, and probably redolent of a man who's not trying all that hard um, at that point, because um, you know he's been doing this for 15 years odd, and, and I think the novelty is probably worn off, and even the novelty of being a solo artist is probably worn off, and maybe that's what he needed at that point. Maybe he needed the Travelling Wilburys in 1976 rather than you know 1987 or whatever. And also, I think the musical context of, you know, we've got punk coming in, which he loathed. You know, he was always a bit fuddy-duddy when it came to new musical, <laughs> you know, developments. You know, he hated rap, he hated punk. Um, he liked quite quiet, pleasant music, mainly. So maybe he was just a bit soured by the whole musical environment and the context of that time as well. I wasn't inspired by that. I, th I think it's interesting because you, you mentioned quite a lot in the book that there's just no modern influence to those albums. You know, he's Hoagie Carmichael was where he's at musically in, in like, you know, 80, 81, you know. I've obviously, the, I've spoke to Ken Womack recently, who's written a fabulous book about John Lennon in 1980. Yes. And we're talking, and Ken was going through all that music that was out in 1980, be it, you know, disco, new wave, punk, you know, all these different elements of things are coming in that, that you know, to be fair, John isn't really, you know, John's aware of, but it's not really yeah. influenced on his music. Yoko, it, it, it certainly is. Um, but there's all that music out there. And, and George has got no, you know, he, he tapped out, really, of mm -hmm. listening to kind of current music, maybe after the Beatles broke up. There's not, you know, like I said, you can't hear a lot of glam in or a lot of, you know, kraut rock in any of George's music, you know, no. from the earlier part it's of quite, it really is quite, it's quite remarkable and quite telling that, as you say, it's just like, no, nah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I suppose somewhere in England, you get the sort of toying with synthesizers and, and uh, you know, trying to inject a little bit of that new technology into it. And it, it doesn't work because clearly he's not that interested in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as you say, Hoagie Carmichael, you know, he's, he's playing the ukulele. That seems to be the big development in his sonic repertoire at that point. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, you see it with Bob Dylan now, where you know everything Dylan does is is almost pre-war. You know, it's pre-rock mm. and roll. It, it's going right back to those early sources. George never seemed to really uh, go beyond that in many ways. I mean, I suppose Indian music was his great um, discovery, I guess, uh, in the mid '60s. Mm. Um, but it's, I would struggle to think of anything beyond that, really, um, where he's picked up on anything happening and kind of. You know, there's bits of, re I mean, reggae became kind of sort of trendy for a while in the late 70s, there's little bits of that. Mm. But no, really, I mean, I, th I think that is one of the problems with those albums is that he's, he's probably overused his sources. You know, the well is dry and he could do with something else to sort of inspire him. And it, it, wherever that's coming from, it's not coming from music. In great, con in great contrast to his old friend Paul, um, you know, who constantly sought for you know, new sounds, not always successfully. You can't imagine George making a Kanye West and Rihanna single at any point, but and probably, you know, rightly so. Um, so I think, I mean, I think, like, I think that goes right back to first principles of, of just who they are. You know, talking mm. right at the beginning about George is quite happy to be in a band playing guitar. Paul never would have been, ever. You know, that was never going to be Paul's uh, lot in life. So I do think that's just partly just down to personality, you know, and, and comfort levels and all that sort of stuff.
Okay, so as you say, uh, Gontropo uh, from '82 is probably the Nadir. It, you know, it's it's the sound of of a man that, that isn't really interested. Um, there's not a lot on that record to recommend it. So he then pours himself really through the '80s, the first part of it is into handmade films, um, which uh, is really worth a podcast on its own. Um, so, that, but then of course, as you mentioned earlier, in '87. Cloud Nine appears, um, and it, it, Cloud Nine's a record that I actually have a large amount of affinity for. I'm of the age where that was my first experience of a, a George Harrison album, um, and you know what a pleasant experience it was. Uh, Definitely. What I, I mean, it, it's looked back on now with a little bit of disdain, maybe with that kind of Jeff Lynne '80s sound. But I think there's some mm. incredibly strong songs on there. What What do you think it was that brought George back? you know into recording such a commercially viable record from his you know he, he basically poured himself into handmade and as you say into 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 the the gardens of Fry Park um, and what do you think was it about Cloud Nine that that made that a success? Well I think you just said his name I think I think it was Jeff Lynn I mean I, th- I think what we were saying just a minute ago about him needing someone to to kind of pull him out of this malaise and inspire him and you know, okay, Jeff Lynne's not the most uh, was not the most cutting edge artist even in 1986, but he, um, you know, he loved music, and he, and he's also a very quick worker. You know, when I was speaking to them, I was amazed how quickly they would work. You know, it, it wasn't this kind of laboriously pieced together um, record that it might you might think it was at that time. You know, it, it was very spontaneous, um, and I think he just he needed somebody to spark off. I think that was all really what it was, and someone to say that this this is really good. Let's finish it. You know, let's actually finish this song. Let's get it recorded. I'll put the drums down. You put the bass down. We'll get it done. I think that pretty much all it was. And, and as you say, Jefflin had that very. It's a very seductive sound. You know, I mean, it's not to everyone's taste, and um, you know, it, it can get a little bit tired. But I think it, it was it was probably the right sound for those songs at that time, and it, it hasn't aged brilliantly but it hasn't aged all that badly either because I think the songs are very strong mm. and also what you see on that record which I think is really nice is that you, you finally see him kind of making peace with the Beatles because Jeff Lynne's such an enthusiast you know he, he kind of drags them to look in the mirror and goes look this is this is your this is your history as well you, this is your legacy you, this stuff belongs to you you can play you know we can write when we was fab and you can have fun with that and no one's gonna you know think there's anything wrong with that and I, I, I do like that I like to see him having a bit of fun mm. with his past because sometimes you think George god you know did you have no fun in the Beatles was it was it really that bad so it's nice to see him kind of playing around with it and you know they're just very commercial songs you know even that cover I got my mind set on you which is just sounds so kind of right when you hear it you think that's a great idea it, it's it and it's just bashed out and I think um yeah, so I think it was it was the foundation of that was just someone's enthusiasm firing him to get this stuff done, mm. and you know Jeff Lynne was a writing partner. He wrote a lot of those songs, and and as you say, and uh, as you said from your own experience, you know it really did reintroduce him to a lot of people. It's twenty or well, nearly twenty years since the Beatles broke up, mm. um, so there's a whole new kind of um, audience there that's ready to hear these kind of attractive commercial sounding songs that sound fine on the radio, which a lot of the songs on the albums that he'd released prior to that didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't sound like they belonged anywhere really mm. in the commercial environment, whereas these did, you know, they jump out, they're sharp, 
uh, they're punchy, they're catchy, and they're still very George. You know, the, the, the slide guitar still there, his voice is still there, his lyrical um, sleights of hand are still there. It's still very much him, mm. but he's packaged it in a really commercial way. And I do think we need to give Jeff Lynne a huge amount of credit for that. I do think it almost became a labor of love for him, like to get George back. Um, yeah. And he really did. You know, it was very successful. It, it was, and that, that's followed up sharply by the experience that George had with uh, Travelling Wilburys, um, which uh, is, you know, again, in particular, the first record was another huge kind of commercial uh, success. What I mean, it, it, in the book, you're quite clear that George was a prime mover and essentially was the leader of the Wilburys. He kind of played the pool role a little bit. In, you know, he would tend to make the phone call. Um what do you think he got from the Wilburys? Do you think it was just being in a band again, or, or, or do you think it was something else? Yeah, I think I think I think that that's what we see in this period. It's just how I think how collaborative he really was by nature. How much he really needed that, and and it brought out the best in his work most of the time. Um, and also, you know, it's funny because I spoke to you know a few Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne, right. and you know they both said. Well, you know, no, he was a leader. No, Bob, Bob was a leader. And another one said, well, no, George was a leader. Obviously. And then George would say, well, Roy Orbison obviously was, you know, we deferred to Roy because Roy mm. was. And so I suppose it was that thing where, although, of course, he's a Beatle, you know, it's not a deferential atmosphere where everyone's kind of kowtowing to him because he's the top man. Um, they're all top men. They, they, you know, they're all huge stars. I suppose Dylan and Roy Orbison and George Harrison, you know, it would be difficult to say who kind of has the top of the hierarchy there so I think he liked that as well that you could um you could be quite critical of each other there was no pressure no expectation and you know they're throwing ideas around and I think that's that seemed to be the way he liked to work is that you know someone would throw a lyric in a recording and he could fire off that mm. and it was fun you know I, I, I think again with those 70s records you don't get a sense often of him maybe having fun you know he's kind of going dutifully to the studio Mm. Of course, this record was made completely differently than that. It, it was made very spontaneously um, in people's houses. So it, it has that kind of quite skiffily early Beatles, you know, that, that kind of origins of why we're doing this in the first place is just to have fun with our mates and play acoustic guitar. And, and it's captured quite nicely on that record. And again, there's some really, really good songs in it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's strong. I think the first record in, in particular yeah. um, is, 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 is still sounds, sounds great. Obviously, they're without Roy for the second one, and I think they miss him. Um, yeah. There was talk of getting, was it Del Shannon at one point? Was it Del Shannon? I can't remember. There was, there was someone that they were thought of bringing in to replace Roy. Because, of course, I mean, the, you know, I suppose you'd think of, you know, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, George Harrison, it's quite a narrow vocal bandwidth that, you know, they're not, it's not, there's nothing operatic there. Whereas with Roy Orbison, you really can start to do very interesting things vocally. And mm. yeah, I agree with you. I think it, it, it affected the, it must have affected the songwriting because it limits you a little bit to what you can do. Um, but there's bits of, the, bits of the second album I like as well, but I think the first album, yeah, is, is a, you know, if we if we put it into George Harrison's kind of catalogue into Tezuka, it's it stands out as a really strong piece of work. It does, thankfully. Thankfully, it's there. It's just a shame they never toured. That would have been a, a hell of a tour to get to get those guys on the stage together. But but anyway, um, well, again, I think I think that was I think that George's. Uh, I think George put the kibosh on that. I think right. there was talk of that happening. And, oh, really? And George okay. didn't want to do it. Okay. Boo, yeah. Boo, George. In this case, uh, so. After the, 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 Cloud, the Cloud Nine record and the two Wilburys albums, 
the next kind of major part of George's life is the Beatles anthology, uh, which yeah. is 25 years ago this year. Being the age that I am, that was a, a big part of my kind mm. of beat. Beatle. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it was a, it was a big deal at the time. Um, uh, what do you, a few questions around the anthology. The talk at the time was that George was really only doing this for financial reasons. Uh, his dealings with Dennis O'Brien and have handmade films had gone awry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned in the, in the book that during the, a lot of the recording of the anthology, you know, he's in court, you know, he's going through a court case with, with Dennis at, mm. uh, at certain points. Um, yeah. Do you think that that was the, the main reason for George doing this? Or do you think that there was something else? I mean, you mentioned when we was fab before, he was starting to be a little bit more receptive to be all dumb. You know, he was yeah. certainly, a, you know, a, a little bit more positive about that. Um, what do you think his main reasons for doing the anthology were? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly there was that the financial context was quite quite difficult at that time. But I, I doubt he would have done it just solely for those reasons. You know, I'm sure there's other ways he could have, uh, you know, raised a few bob. I, I do think he was starting to get interested in legacy and and you know what it meant. And there was sufficient distance by this point to look back a bit more clearly and and try and make sense of it all. I think. Personally, I think, you know, I think it was probably quite invested in that personally rather than just sort of me. And I think what you get from looking at the, the program and speaking to some of the people who were involved in it was, I think he would have liked to have a more, a more honest sort of discussion about Beatles and what happened, what went wrong. Whereas, you know, the anthology was, and when the three of them are together, and there's not, there's not all that much of them together, but, it, you know, it's quite light. And you see Paul always coming in with a little crack and a little quip to try and keep keep the spirits high when everything anything gets a little bit controversial. And I think I would love to have seen a little bit more of George. And I think if John had been around, you probably would have got it from John as well, of just kind of tempering all that enthusiasm mm. with a, a bit more kind of honesty and, and cynicism and, and skepticism about the whole thing. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, I do think clearly he was, he was invested in it or, you know, he wouldn't, I, I don't think he would have done it. And um, where I think he, did become disillusioned as a recording of the of the the, the new songs, you know. Um, there was, I'm sure you know, there was supposed to be three of those, and and uh, you know, the last one never happened because George um, just couldn't stick it anymore. Um, but it also showed how kind of how strong he'd become. You know, he negotiated. He got Jeff Lennon to do that. You know, that was not Paul's choice. George levered uh, Jeff and to produce it. So hmm. I think he. That maybe was another reason for doing it was to kind of show, look, this, you know, I've kind of grown up a lot and I've, I can stand up for myself now. And I, and I guess if he hadn't been involved, I'd, would it have happened or not? I don't know. Um, there may have been that lurking in his mind as well. Well, if I'm not involved, then it's going to happen anyway. And, and you know, I'm not going to be represented and I'm not going to say things I want to say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I spoke to uh, Jeff Wanfer, who, who was one of the directors of, of that, of the anthology, and he said, you know, it was quite... There wasn't a lot of affection, put it that way. There wasn't a lot of kind of residual bonhomie between them all by that point. It was quite businesslike. And um, the idea, you know, there's some film footage of them playing around in the studio briefly. And, and um, I think they wanted a lot more of that in the film. And it just, it didn't, it didn't fly. You know, it wasn't there anymore. And I think you can see that. But maybe it was this idea of a kind of letting go of all that that was maybe attractive to him. I was just going to say what, you know, that the footage that, 
that we have, the very limited footage that we have of, the, of their day at George's house, of course. So I, I yeah, think George's house. Uh, Park, again, that's a little kind of push to George there that they decide to do that at, at George's house. So George hasn't, hasn't got to go anywhere. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating... I mean, I could, for people like me, that bit of film is a fascinating 15 minutes of film, watching the interactions between the three of them. Uh, you know, at times, there, I think there is some warmth at times. Um, mm. But, you know, the, the, the bit that is, is spoken about on other podcasts where they're playing, Paul suggests with his normal vigour and gusto to play Blue Moon of, Ke- of Kentucky and George just says just a shortened version. Um, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think if George could have done there a shortened version, yeah. I, I think that speaks for, I think if George could have done a shortened version of, of everything, then he would have done it, um, it had it involved I, I, Paul. I think it is. Yes, I think it is telling, and I agree. There, no, there's definitely warmth there. I mean, mm. they they had been through a lot and they cared for each other. But I suppose it's like meeting up with your old school friends in a way. You know, it's like, you know, a little bit goes a long way when you when you're 45 years old or whatever, mm. or 50 or however old they were then. I, I think, mm. and trying to reconstruct that or recreate it clearly uh, didn't work. You can see that, um, and you can hear it. I think as well. So. Um, but yeah, it took up a lot of his time, and you know, there's huge gaps in his chronology of his of his of his work at that point. Whereas you'd have thought maybe after um, Cloud Nine and Traveling Wilburys, you know, he could keep kind of pushing on. Once again, you know, that doesn't happen. He sort of fades away as a solo artist, which yeah. is a shame. Because, of course, as you say, he, he's on a real roll going in. You know, even the, yeah. the Japanese. There was talk. There's interviews that he did around that Japanese tour where they're suggesting to him, you know, are you going to go to the States? You're going to do the UK? You're going to do Europe? You know. Um, but it, it never happened. I mean, did you get any insight from writing the book as to why that happened? Was it just the anthology came along or was there anything else at play, do you think? Uh, no, I don't think it was just the anthology because, I mean, although that did take up a lot of time, I don't think it would have stopped him um, touring. And there was, uh, uh, amongst the band, and it was Eric Clapton's band mm. primarily, uh, there was an expectation. I think there may have been a clash of dates originally that, that Clapton was off to do something uh, somewhere else. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, doing it in Japan, clearly, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a financial decision, you know, that, that, and, and it's also a very safe decision because there's very little back then. It's the other side of the world. The audiences are very polite and well-behaved and it's, everything's quite well-managed. And maybe it was just, you know, just to show himself he could do it, you know, and record it and put it out and show that people that he could do this. Mm. Um, clearly, if he'd enjoyed it that much, he would have kept doing it. But we get, you know, we get one show at the Royal Albert Hall after that. Um, and that's it. Mm. Mm. I'm amazed that he never toured the UK. You know, I, I, I'm amazed that a, one of those records, it, it would have been so easy for him to do just, you know, a, a jaunt around, you know, certain venues in the UK. But It's alas. funny though. You, I mean, you, you say that and then you think, you know, because someone else I've written a lot about is Kate Bush. And, you, and you know, she's, she did it once, a European tour, and she did a res, that residency. Yeah. And clearly it's just not what they want to do. I mean, yeah. you, you say it will, it's easy and it would be, it would be so easy. Just clearly it's not, you know, no. it's a month or six, two months of your life. And it's, it's, it's when you don't have to, mm. um, clearly it's just not what he wanted to do for whatever reason. And I, I spoke to um, Mike Campbell who played in that last gig that he did at the Albert Hall, that one-off concert. Mm. And he said he was really nervous. You know, George was really nervous. He said, do you think, do you think they'll like me? <laughs> before he went on stage you know do you think they'll like me do you think it'll be okay and Mike Campbell's going what are you talking about so it obviously wasn't his happy place you know it wasn't his comfort zone and and I guess why do it if you don't have to yeah 
Absolutely. In, again, in great contrast to Paul, who who needs that, you know, never really stopped. Uh, OK, there was a period in the 80s, but, um, you know, he, he, he's constantly out there. But as you say, it goes back to those difference in, in personalities that, that the four of them had. Um, I think just just to conclude now, obviously, the you know, the, the book covers in, I think, with some some real warmth and where you can the, the final years of George's life, which, you know, we won't, don't need to go over the events that are, that are well written and, and spoken about um, that, that lead up to, to his death. Um, just to, uh, uh, to conclude about, you know, your own personal experience of, of writing the book, were you, um, was your view of George kind of changed from when you started writing the book to, to when you finished? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you, I think you always hope that you go in with certain kind of um, beliefs or, prejudices or expectations and then they, they do get overturned and um i'm always happy that they they, they do um yeah i mean I, I i liked him very much you know i liked him even when he was being a, a bastard you know I, I liked i liked that really blunt scouse quality that never left him um, i liked that he was stubborn um i liked that he is impossible to categorize you know because we talk about his spirituality and you know, he was very upfront about the fact that it coexisted along with, alongside a very, very human, flawed um, human being. You know, and, and, and he said that's, that's the whole point, actually, really. It's not that you live this kind of pious, perfect lifestyle. It's that you try, uh, amongst all the difficulties and flaws and temptations of life, that you, you try and find something uh, more meaningful than that. You know, and, and I, I like the fact that it would have been very easy for him not to have done that. It would have been easy for him to live a very kind of, um, shallow life, you know, in the public eye, and, and, and he, he didn't, you know, he was always striving, and often in the face of, you know, mild ridicule or disappointment of people's expectations, he stuck with that, and, um, and you know, and his sense of humor, people really, really loved him and liked him just for what, for what he was, and I think he tried very hard, you know, he wasn't averse to playing the Beatles card occasionally, but I think he tried to be taken, uh, you know, face to face as as a human being, just as another guy, and, and taken on those merits. And um, I think he stands quite tall o- on that criteria. You know, I think he was a a pretty good human being with all the flaws thrown in. Um, and it, you know, he left behind. And it, it, you know, going into the music was a joy as well. I didn't know all the all the albums uh, as well uh, as I might have before I started the book. So it, it it was a real it was a real joy going into all those records. And however, you know you know, patchy some of them are, there's always something in there. There's always a line or a song or a mm. guitar lick or something that, that kind of um, makes you, your ears stand up. So, um, no, I really enjoyed the experience of spending time with George. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I and, and I'm sure many of the listeners have really enjoyed spending time with the book, uh, George Harrison, Behind the Locked Door. Graham Thompson, I've, I've really enjoyed this this hour or so uh, talking about this. I think it's uh, it, it's been truly enlightening i think george would be proud of us if <laughs> likewise it's been fun thank you very Excellent. much thank you thanks so much graham thank you